new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have a really informative show for you today, so my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome once again, and I'm really excited about today's show. You know, last week during our Arctic amplification conversation, we touched on, but skirted around an in-depth conversation on the difference between climate and weather, specifically extreme weather events and if they are caused by anthropogenic climate change. For those that were with me back at episode four, when I looked at the Australian bushfires, you may remember me asking, so back to our initial question. Were the 2019-2020 bushfires caused by climate change? To be honest, that's the wrong question to ask. The question we and the media should be asking is, were the conditions that led to the probability of such an event more likely as a result of anthropogenic climate change? And the answer to that is yes, by roughly 30%. It seems we've reached a point where we need to dedicate an entire show to this question as we can't have a reasonable conversation about mitigating climate change if we don't have a firm grasp as to what climate change actually is. To help guide our conversation today, I'll be referencing several papers, but our basis for this conversation is called Understanding and Managing Connected Extreme Events and was published the 15th of June, 2020. As always, you can find the link to the paper on the website, southof2degrees.org. By this point, most of you have heard my wardrobe analogy for climate change. So today, let's take a more standardized approach and use the IPCC's definition. Climate is the statistical description in terms of the mean and variability of relevant quantities over a period of time ranging from months to thousands or millions of years. In layman's terms, it's the mean weather using a classical period of 30 or more years. Climate change, then, is defined by the statistical change in that mean. Note that the UNFCCC defines climate change as, quote, a change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of the global atmosphere and which is in addition to the natural climate variability observed over comparable time periods, end quote. Now, if you missed what they just did there, they incorporated anthropogenic forcing into their definition. Now, here on the show, when I use the word climate change, I use the word anthropogenic in front of it to make sure there is no confusion because natural climate change does exist. However, that is not what the overwhelming majority of people are talking about when you hear the phrase. So the UNFCCC just incorporated it. Is that wrong? No, just something to note. As for weather, if you don't know what that is, go stick your head out of a window or a door. Seriously, I can wait. Actually, I'll probably get sued for whistling that. So now whatever you just felt, sunshine, rain, cold, hot, misty, windy, humid, etc., that's weather. Now, before we go too deep into today's conversation, I want to address the way scientists speak as I have heard far too many people as of late latch onto the terms scientists use and wield them against anyone fighting to address the greatest issue of our time. Namely, scientists use terms such as likely, unlikely, high confidence, low confidence, 
medium confidence. It can just get exhausting to those not in the profession, so why do they do it? For starters, and I hate to be the one to break it to you, but the world is not black and white. And to anyone who just laughed and said, yeah, Brian, it's more like Fifty Shades of Grey, I'd say, ha ha, but as much as I dislike your joke, you're not wrong. Science deals with probability and statistics based on observations. They then make inferences for the empty space in between those observations using calculation models like Barnes Interpolation and Weather Forecasting. And no, that's not named after me, rather my late and might I add awesome Uncle Stan Barnes, who actually came up with it. And using models like DGVMs, or Dynamic Global Vegetation Models, which we also discussed in Episode 4. Because these require assumptions and are built by humans, there is an innate and unavoidable aspect of error. Yes, we have gotten immensely better, but it's not perfect. As a result, scientists use these phrases. And yes, it runs counter to the media's narrative and the majority of their audience's desire to have a definitive answer. Now, to put all this phraseology into perspective, let's look at a quick example before we dive into the nitty-gritty of today's paper. In the IPCC AR5 Chapter 3, they say, quote, There is high confidence that changes in heat waves, glacial retreat, and or permafrost degradation will affect high mountain phenomena such as slope instabilities, mass movements, and glacial lake outburst floods, end quote. Notice they didn't say it will happen. They said that there is a high confidence it could happen. Now let's look at that from a simpler angle. If I lay a piece of sod on top of an ice block and you stand on it while I heat that ice block with a space heater, are you going to fall on your backside? Damn skippy you will. However, while science does deal in facts, it doesn't deal in certainties. So instead, they say there is a high confidence that if you melt the side of a frozen mountain, that ground will become unstable. Got it? You with me? Cool. Now, what I really like about today's paper is it took a slightly different angle at looking at extreme events, their connections, and how it couples with climate change. The problem we face with regards to anthropogenic climate change is that it's really a bifurcated argument. On one hand, it's the, this is going to impact the way of life as we know it, i.e., it's all about me. And then there is the argument of, anthropogenic climate change is going to dramatically alter the natural world, be it the survivability of coral reefs or the polar bear. Now, is one right and one wrong? No. Is one more right than the other? No. So we need to address our impact with both in mind. However, when we look at climate change, we tend to see the natural world. But when we look at extreme weather events, we mostly equate it to us, the human race, and how these events impact our society. Extreme events and their specific correlation to anthropogenic climate change is something that we'll get into later in the show. But to start, let's look at how anthropogenic changes in the environment affect our perception of extreme events. While as much as you and I may not be able to understand them, there are anthropogenic climate change deniers, or maybe more accurately, non-acceptors out there. Yet there isn't a single one of them that denies we humans haven't changed our environment. Through clear-cutting for agriculture, plastering large swaths of land with concrete and blacktop, or even violating the 2,000-year-old tenant of just building a house on the sand, we have modified the world around us. And with those changes and decisions regarding them, we significantly impact the way we see extreme events. 
Now, this paper looked at both the climatic as well as the exacerbating societal drivers that change, amplify, and upon occasion cause connections of extreme weather events. Quick side note, if you do head over to southof2degrees.org and use the link to read the paper, pay special attention to Table 1. Now, for everyone else, I'll do my best to explain it as it really summarizes everything we've just talked about. For instance, the paper takes drought. What are the climatic drivers of it? Well, you've got precipitation, evapotranspiration, antecedent oil moisture, and temperature. But what are the societal drivers of drought? Well, land use, water management, soil management, etc. Now, it did this not only for drought, but for physiological heat stress, fire risk, storm risk, both coastal and river confluence flooding, concurrent heat and drought, concurrent wind and precipitation extremes, and concurrent heat and air pollution. Now, I won't rattle off all the drivers of each in the interest of time, but it then further tied these connected extremes into the sectors of food, water, human health, infrastructure, and insurance. The paper did this to highlight the needs and the challenges we face as a society, as well as the mountain of work our policymakers desperately need to accomplish to help us address the impacts of climate change. To take this into terms you can visualize a little bit better, let's look for instance at the California wildfires of last year. The extreme event much of California faced was heat and drought, coupled by Diablo and Santa Ana winds. Now, keep in mind, catabatic winds or high-density winds that race down slope have different names for different regions all over the world. Diablo and Santa Ana are just the names of the ones you find in California. Now, without anthropogenic forcing, these high winds and dry conditions might have gone unnoticed save for the impact on local flora and fauna. However, as a lesson from the campfire of 2018 that burned the California town of Paradise off the map, where decades of mismanagement of critical infrastructure caused the fire, the local utility in 2019 proactively shut down power in major swaths of California. While this may have staved off an extreme fire event, or shall we say a more extreme event than what Californians experienced, it exacerbated a heat event where many, especially in low-income or vulnerable areas, suddenly were without cooling capabilities, causing heat stress on many in society as a whole to perceive the event differently. So did anthropogenic forcing change the impact of the event? Yes, absolutely. Did anthropogenic forcing change the event itself? Well, you might be able to argue that. Did anthropogenic forcing cause the heat and wind? Not really a valid question, to be honest. However, did anthropogenic forcing increase the likelihood of an extreme heat and wind event? Well, in the case of the 2019 Australian bushfires, we found the answer to be yes by roughly 30%. As for California... I haven't seen a study published specific 2019, so I can't say and won't speculate, at least not on this podcast. However, while the paper continues with some fascinating methods for analyzing connected events, we're going to move on to look specifically at the correlation between weather and climate and how it's perceived in the human mind. One of the more interesting things multiple studies have found is that our perception and feeling about climate change is affected by personal experience with weather. While the two are very separate, all but the few in the scientific realm often blend the two. Maybe not in our conversations, 
but at least in our own mind. Now, a paper published in 2018 called Testing the Influence of Recent Weather on Perceptions of Personal Experience with Climate Change and Extreme Weather in New York State looked exactly at this and found some obvious and not-so-obvious aspects. For starters, on the obvious side, the paper found that political party affiliation was one of the top predictors of belief in or denial of anthropogenic climate change. Now, aside from the anti-intellectualism movement that I won't dive into here as we do strive to stay apolitical, the paper found that personal media selection heavily influenced an individual's ability to accept the fact that anthropogenic climate change is real. Now, where it got really interesting was in how we perceive weather and attribute or not attribute it to anthropogenic climate change in our own minds. The study found that an individual could accurately convey the weather of the current day. Wow, hardly groundbreaking, I know, but again, we're dealing with scientific models, so just roll with it, okay? It also found that an individual could convey the weather over the last year with relative accuracy as well. However, when asked to convey the weather over a longer run, accuracy declined notably and found that, quote, the influence of short-term weather on individuals' perception of long-term trends may be partly explained by findings that the general public often confuses weather and climate, end quote. Now, I know I'm a nerd when it comes to this, but truly, I think you'll agree with me because it got even more interesting as the study found that an individual's acceptance to a message on the realities of anthropogenic climate change varied with the current weather that day. Notably that for individuals who were unsure of anthropogenic climate change being a reality, they were more receptive to a message on it during warm to hot days and not as receptive on cool to cold ones. Now, this speaks straight to our subconscious reasoning and confusion of weather and climate. This was further supported by yet another study that found that the significant cold snaps as a result of the weakening of the polar vortex were used by climate change deniers as evidence against global warming, despite near-unanimous proof that the weakening has occurred as a result of anthropogenic forcing and an overall warming climate. Further, it found that motivated reasoning plays a significant role, namely that an individual that believes strongly that climate change isn't happening is less likely to notice unusual weather patterns, while an individual who already accepts the truth that anthropogenic climate change is happening is more likely to attribute any extreme weather event as evidence thereof. While not covered in the study, this plays into what I call the those people over there tenant. Namely, that an individual who has a localized view, who is not experiencing events directly, rather they watch it or read about it in the news happening to those people over there, will be more likely to refute the overwhelming evidence that supports anthropogenic climate change than the individual who has a more global perspective. Now, this is supported by the paper as they found, quote, the link between climate change perceptions and actions is further complicated by a variety of factors, including in individuals' attachment to global versus local places and defensiveness triggered by feelings of low capacity to affect change on a global issue. Finally, it's the last part of that sentence we need to work hard to change. Many individuals, and I know more than a couple, that struggle to accept anthropogenic climate change can trace their non-acceptance to a feeling of having their own lives judged and their individual rationalization that they are powerless to affect change. So what can we do? Well, we can start by leading by example, whether it's plastic-free July or holding city governments accountable or simply planting a few trees. 
We can all be the change we want to see in the world. However, it doesn't stop there. We have to talk about it with others. If you remember in our first episode, we learned that 59% of Americans rarely to never have a conversation about climate change. With that, our first step should be just having the conversation and no, not to the choir. It's easy enough just to start with the difference of weather and climate. Use my wardrobe analogy or make up your own to describe the difference or just say that according to the standards set forth by the American Meteorological Society, weather is what you feel today and climate is the mean of all those days over a rolling 30-year period. That said, as we learn from the papers we looked at today, when you have those conversations, make sure you have those conversations on an unusually hot day. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and gained something from it. And I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Until then, stay safe. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. Seriously, go do it. We have to have the conversation. And above all, keep it south to the greatest.